and welcome to Hypot Enthuse, the podcast of the Faculty of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host Malcolm and I'm here with my co-host Myrmana. Hi everyone! And today we are talking to Dr. Suze Kundu, who is the Head of Public Engagement at Digital Science. Uh, Suze has a background in chemistry, uh, having done her BSc, Masters and PhD all at UCL, and then went on to work for Imperial and the University of Surrey, is that correct, Suze? It was, it was indeed, yeah. Uh, three and a half years at the first and I think two and a half years at the second, yeah. But she has now moved on to, as we said, uh, Head of Public Engagement at Digital Science. And that's what we'll be talking to her about today on the International Day of Women and Girls in Science. Suze, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. How are you both? Oh, that's <laughs> nice to be asked. <laughs> um, okay, I guess. Good, good as can be. in the struggling a lot. There's yeah. been a lot of that, hasn't there? There's been a lot yeah. of, I mean, I'm fine considering, and people just sort of gesticulate around them at, you know, what seems like the dumpster fire that is. Um, But yeah. To start off with, Sue, can you tell us something about digital science and and the work that you do there? Yeah, I think the easiest way to describe what digital science does is to talk about the things I loved about academia when I was in it, and the things that I found just kind of frustrating. Um, So it is international you know, that, that we're celebrating women today and, and girls in science. And that's a great thing. And um, as a woman and as a woman of colour in science, it's funny, I didn't feel like a woman <laughs> until, until I was a postgrad in that I didn't feel that there was anything particularly different or remarkable about being a woman in mm. a STEM subject. And this is partly down to the fact that, I mean, I went to a girls' school where subjects just weren't gendered. I studied at UCL, where actually I think they do a really good job, actually, of having quite a a representative, at least undergraduate workforce, and certainly I would say postgraduate workforce as well. It was only when I was at my first proper conference, um, and it was the IUPAC conference, and the previous destinations had been places like Puerto Rico and Hawaii and Canada. I was in Glasgow. Um, <laughs> yep. Not yep. that there's anything wrong with Sorry, Scotland. So no, do you know what? I got sunburnt that week. It was a beautifully <laughs> sunny week in Scotland. So at this IUPAC conference, it was the first time I was presenting my own novel work as a PhD student in front of my peers, some of whom I had been, you know, reading papers of for a good couple of years. The, the people there were just incredible. And I did what I thought I ought to do, you know, in in this sort of respectable company. I dressed in a skirt suit. I had my, you know, my cleanest heels on. I was announced and I went up on stage and there was this audible sigh. And I kind of looked out and I looked at the AV guy thinking, did I hear that? Or, you know, was that just in my head? And the guy literally just went, I'll just ignore it. I think it's just because you're a woman. And I was like, squeeze me? And it was, and I looked out and it was just this sea of, I don't want to say pale male stale, but I've said it and you can choose to edit that or not. But it was, you know, there was a a very um, dominant demographic within that crowd. And it was kind of frustrating because I remember thinking everybody else has rocked up on the stage in kind of jeans and a jumper that their dogs partly chewed or their baby sicked up on the previous week. (laughs) And they're all fine and they haven't had this sort of, quite obviously negative response. And so I I remember thinking, this is 
awful. And why is mm. that? And the fact that the guy had just said, oh, it's because you're a woman. Everything was fine. Within sort of five or 10 minutes, they'd all settled in. They were listening to the science that I was presenting. And and I was on that equal footing again because I'd almost proven myself to be of equal footing um, in, in this environment. And they were full of questions afterwards, but it really stuck with me. And I think that was the first time I realized that being a woman and maybe being a woman of color as well meant that I was perceived quite differently. I had been so (laughs) sheltered up until this point in my life. And suddenly I started to think, well, that seems a bit unfair. And so this was one of the things about research culture that frustrated me. The other things were that research, I think, still maintains some quite archaic processes for the sake of it that I don't think necessarily are conducive to research productivity and efficiency. We're so lucky that we get to work in research. We have, you know, taxpayers that are funding work that should ultimately be making everybody's lives better. We have a responsibility, therefore, to make the most of that funding, to work as collaboratively as possible, to work as free from any kind of barrier to progress as possible. And I really didn't feel that research was that place. And there's only so much that you can do within the system to change that. And I kind of got just a bit more worn down and a little bit more frustrated. But in the background, there had been this amazing, positively disruptive company called Digital Science. And in in any of the events that I'd seen them run, they were kind of looking at the status quo and going, okay, well, this is how it is. But hey, by making these small changes, often using technology, we can make things better. And so this is what digital science does. It's an umbrella organization. Um, So you may not have heard of digital science, but if you're a researcher, you are very likely to have used many of their software solutions that help research. So we have things like Figshare, which I know UCL use um, as a data repository. We have things like um, Symplectic Elements, which is not what UCL call it, but it's basically your research um, system where you log all of your outputs, whether it's teaching, engagement, research. Um, You have things like Altmetric, which help you understand the kind of impact that your research is reaching or or achieving. Um, You have all of these different tools. We have one that's just gorgeous. I have a a big crush on this one. It's called Dimensions. And it's just this massive linked research database. So rather than just dive in and kind of find the research that you need because it's all linked by this delicious metadata, you can take a piece of research and understand where it sits in the wider context of the research landscape. So the grant that funded it, the collaborations that that came about from it, the papers that came from this one paper, things that have been cited in the paper, things that have cited the paper, any patents or policy documents that have come from this piece of work. And you get to kind of just see trends within research. And it gives you just a better idea and an insight of how you're doing and how you fit within this wider picture. And so that's why I wanted to leave. I had a real passion for kind of engaging people with ways to make research better and to nudge this research culture to be more open, more inclusive and more efficient. Um, And that's why I work here now. And I've been here for two and a half years and it's been brilliant. And sadly, sadly or kind of encouragingly with this alternative academic, this alt-act career, I think um, I've had probably a more positive impact doing what I do now and working with these incredible Mm -hmm. people than I have had as a researcher. 
So make of that what you will. But I, I'm very happy that I made this move. It was a good one for me. It makes me feel a bit useful. <laughs> it's always nice, isn't it? Uh, well, first of all, you, you kind of mentioned a really horrific incident there with the conference. So just to say that, that I'm so sorry that happened. That sounds oh, it's honestly, so explicitly it's tiny sort of misogynistic and horrible. Um, but there's far worse out there. There are some horror stories out there. No, so I think true. I've actually got off quite lightly. I get what you mean. That's the thing. I wish I was more shocked almost. But yeah. that's, yeah, that's awful. But at the same time, I'm really glad that it almost kind of propelled you into this field that made, makes you feel so much more fulfilled and kind of comfortable and yeah. able to to change things that you noticed all throughout your research time um, mm -hmm. were problematic. And I just wonder whether you could tell us a little bit more about kind of what digital science does in terms of the efforts that they make in terms of improving diversity in STEM. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I mentioned this uh, dimensions database. So again, yeah. on, on the face of it, it's just an awesome research search engine, I suppose. Um, but actually what it can do is we, we have an incredible consultancy team and part of their work is to look at research trends. Um, and so one of the things that uh, a few of us are quite passionate about is looking at equality, diversity and inclusion within research. So using the, the data insights that we can gather, the research information trends that we can see, we can start to actually notice good things and things that are maybe not as good that need to change a bit more quickly. So for example, um, last year, we did a couple of studies where we were looking at how COVID-19 has affected women first authors. Uh, so our incredible data science team take all this information, they look at the numbers of papers that have been released in 2020, they compare that to previous years and the general trends, and they can run these through a, a Python gender guesser. So it's a whole bunch of gorgeous data science. And what they found, at least for the first part of the year, was that sadly, as you can kind of predict, there were fewer women um, publishing first authored papers than there were in previous years. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that unfortunately women have to bear the brunt of childcare, of looking after older relatives. And there's all of this stuff. And of course, things are changing for the better. I think we hear a lot more about how um, a, lot of, a lot of couples and a lot of families try and split this workload more equally. But when you start to think about intersectional issues, there are cultural associations tied with this as well, where certain cultures are going to be more impacted, as is always the case, um, when something like this happens. And so that was kind of one way that we were able to look at it. What we did then do, the, the brilliant team behind this actually had a look at it again towards the end of the year. And they found that actually women authored papers were picking up again, which is a positive thing. It's hard to tell whether we're just maybe settling into this now or people are starting to support their employees a bit better. It's difficult. And we understand that something like this has thrown everybody and their ways of working. Perhaps we're getting used to it. Perhaps things are starting to equal out a bit more. It's a good thing. Um, the other way that digital science particularly are trying to get more involved in bringing these issues to the forefront is their involvement in the Research on Research Institute. So it's a brand new research institute that was launched by digital science the Wellcome Trust, the University of Sheffield and CWTS at the University of Leiden. And what they do is literally research 
research and the trends that we see in research. So how impactful is it? How efficient is it? And by diving into different aspects of research and research culture, how we conduct research, they're identifying kind of barriers to efficiency. And so many of these barriers can actually come down to EDI challenges because we're starting to really see underrepresentation of certain groups within STEM. We're starting to see underrepresentation of groups within funded research. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see, you know, it's it's always the same groups being impacted by this. And so why is this happening? Is it because we don't have a a broad enough or a representative enough grant funding panel? Is it that we're making the, the peer review process somehow biased? Are there ways that we can use tech to overcome this? Is using AI in peer review a good thing or are we going to propagate existing biases in doing that? And there's so many different ways that we're looking into this. We are not EDI experts. And so the great thing about the Research and Research Institute is that it's bringing together a whole consortium of different organizations across the world, different kinds of actors within the research ecosystem, and asking each of them to get involved in these conversations so that we can tackle the problem together. Because if we're trying to change research culture, individuals and organizations can only do so much, but you need this greater buy-in from the whole profession in order to really affect change. And I think just understanding that these things don't happen overnight. They require a lot of time, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't celebrate the small successes and that we shouldn't keep the momentum going because it's gonna be so worthwhile. Ultimately, all we want to do is make research the best it can be. And that means identifying all of the problems that we have for all of society, and then bringing together a whole range of different minds to solve those problems. Surely, You can't object to that. That's a good way of doing things. (laughs) I was just going to say, you've mentioned a couple of times that digital science have uh, found loads of examples of research structures or research methods that seem to be, uh, if not discriminatory, at least definitely weighted against uh, Mm -hmm. women or people. Can you give any examples of some of the specific kind of things that you've come across? Yes, certainly. I mean, one of the things that a lot of institutions are worrying about at the moment or certainly concerned by is the up and coming REF. Um, So the lovely, lovely REF 2021, the Research Excellence Framework, is a way in which institutions and researchers can submit what they consider their best and most impactful research outputs so that they can be assessed on how good the researches that they are conducting. Now, the ways that we measure excellence may or may not be the fairest ways of doing them because there are certain things that are going to favour certain groups. There are certain aspects of research and the expectations that we place on researchers and the ways that we consider research to be excellent that may not be fair or representative. I mean, one kind of common example of this is how many times have you heard somebody say, oh, hey, I got a nature paper. And it's like, great, you got a nature paper. Nature is a really kind of high impact journal. That's wonderful. But what is journal impact? I mean, why are we not Mm. valuing 
some of the more perhaps niche journals that focus on a, on a very specific area in the same kind of way. We had our Digital Science Global Showcase back in October and I had a great discussion with somebody about this. Um, so his name is Abe Packer and he's from Cielo and they're trying to really kind of open up research um, in, in Latin American countries, particularly in Brazil. And his argument is that, you know, some of the best research that's going on about things like biodiversity in the Amazonian rainforest is um, is taking place within Brazil. And they are publishing those papers in more local journals that are very focused on this, this particular area. They are experts in that field. They share their work in that particular journal, but because that's not seen as a kind of global, high-impact journal, yeah. for some reason it's not valued in the same way. And so this is kind of just one way that we're, we're, we sort of take these ideas of a journal impact factor or an H in, you know, there's, there's just loads of things in research that we place a lot of value on, but actually, are they just favoring the already privileged within this kind of sphere? Because you get one nature paper, you get another nature paper because you've suddenly mm. made a name for yourself. Mm. You appear in one conference or you you win one particular award and suddenly you then have a spotlight shone on you and then you're far more likely to be nominated for other things. And so there are lots of ways that we need to kind of look at what we consider good research and how we reward excellent research and think about how we might be able to make these ways of evaluating and understanding research a bit more inclusive and a bit more representative. Absolutely, really well explained. I think especially for people who kind of aren't familiar with how journals can be really quite biased, even if we claim that they are peer reviewed, obviously they Mm. are impacting and kind of valued in different ways. Um, Yeah. And I think actually the funny thing is that I don't know if any particular journal has ever gone out and said, hey, we're the journal to be published in. You know, it's very much a construct of research culture. And of course, journals have their part to play in that in sort of saying, well, you know, yes, we are one journal, um, but there are all these other journals and people can publish in them because that could be better suited to them. But I think that the value that research has put on journal impact factor is maybe one of the ways that this is kind of skewing the playing field a little bit. I came across how um, if authors, sorry, aren't published in English, then Mm -hmm. it means that they're obviously so much less likely to be published in journals like Nature or um, the English speaking ones. And this is yet another way, actually, that, that I'm really pleased that digital science are trying to make a difference we rely on the fact that people tend to publish in English and that's such a yeah. kind of almost arrogant assumption to make yeah. you know um that the kind of the global north is dominated by English speaking countries and therefore that's the language that we work in um, mm. so one of the things that digital science have have invested in is this gorgeous app called rightful and it's a bit like grammarly but for science and so oh, it helps God, you dream. to kind of it's amazing and so because it's based on machine learning and everything it takes the sort of the papers within your area and it learns the the jargon the language um and the the kind of the very specific ways that people write and so when it makes suggestions on your writing it's appropriate for that particular field and that particular journal but when you think about people that don't have english as their first language or people that are maybe neurodiverse and find it quite Mm -hmm. difficult to write 
it, it helps all of these different groups of people, you know, just it gives them just a bit more support in having to, to write in a language that they may not find easy. I, I think a large part of that is down to the fact that uh, English-speaking nations are notoriously terrible at learning any other languages, yes. whereas, of course, every <laughs> other country is forced to learn English. So. And English is hard. I'm glad I never had to learn it. It's so Honestly. irregular in everything. <laughs> Thank you for, for explaining in great detail what digital science is and, and the work that they do. One thing that's fascinated me, I was I was talking with my partner before this and going through your career and going, so she, she had a BSc in chemistry, an MSc in analytical chemistry, a, a PhD in materials chemistry. And as my partner said, oh, she, she could have easily gone into a job in, in the tech industries or something like that. So was there a point at which you were persuaded to, to move towards public engagement? Was there a point where the kind of the light bulb turned on, if you like? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. It's um, I don't think I'd ever particularly realised, but I think I've always been a kind of engagement type of a person. I love a good conversation. Um, the first time, though, I think I really started to get involved with this was at UCL. So one of my lecturers was Professor Andrea Seller ah, over in the chemistry yes. department. And Andrea, I think, is single-handedly responsible for inspiring most of the chemistry <laughs> community that communicates. Yeah. He's incredibly inspiring. His lectures were always different because, yes, of course, there's stuff to learn and there's stuff to copy off the board but he could really tell a story. He still does. If you've ever had the pleasure of being in the company of Andrea, oh, he yes. has a very, <laughs> oh, just such an engaging way of telling a story. And he'll be telling you about the, I don't know, the discovery of cerium, but he'll start way back, you know, coloring mm. in this beautiful landscape context. And it's only then that he'll drill into not just what happened, but what the relevance is as well. And I think 2020 was a classic example of why we need to better engage people in everything that's going on, but particularly science. And I think things that may impact them that maybe people that make decisions around policy are not necessarily that clued up on, but that will impact the public, whether they realize it or not. And I think the, the pandemic and the subsequent sort of vaccine rollout and the ways that maybe the governments have all managed this in their own countries has been a good example of how actually the public need to be a part of this and they need to be yeah. involved in this and they need to hold people accountable to it. We have sort of slight problems, I think, where there's a certain lack of confidence that people have in speaking about science. But you don't have the same lack of confidence when people are talking about the arts necessarily. People are quite confident in saying what they like, what they don't like, what they don't know about. But for some reason, maybe it sort of harks back to old school chemistry and physics and biology teaching in schools. I don't know. But nobody ever likes to, to feel like they don't know something and that's a bad thing. But I think maybe that we've built this sort of public lack of, of confidence saying, well, actually, I don't know about that, but I would like to know. I'd like to know more. So for me, seeing Andrea really engage people with science and falling into then 
um, a, a series of ways that I could engage people with science, whether it was through schools, whether it was through UCL's Bright Club. I've done that too many times. No more, no more, please. My stand-up comedy days must be over now. Um, you know, there's there's lots of ways that you can engage people with science and with research. And I think I fell into doing a lot of that. And inadvertently from doing that, I ended up having a sort of sideline as a, a science communicator. I have this whole science communication career. When I get the time, I write for Forbes um, about yeah. just engaging material science. I get to talk to wonderful people like you on podcasts and things. Oh, too um, kind. flatter us. <laughs> Stop it, Suze. <laughs> this is lovely. And because you're like? my alma mater as well, I love UCL. I'm always happy to fly that flag. Um, <laughs> Um, but, you know, it's it, it, I've fallen into this career where I'm able to do this. And by combining my, I think, skills, I hate saying skills, I don't know why, I literally do this for a job. Um, but my skills in <laughs> communicating science with an aspect of science and research that, as you can probably tell, I'm quite passionate about mm. and about changing. I do feel like I've kind of lucked out. And I think within <laughs> within research, we still have a slight problem where we understand that engaging the public with science is an important thing, but do we promote a culture where that is rewarded? I would say, and I'm not saying this just because it's you guys, but at UCL, you guys do that well. You are well known for being a sort of talent hoover of incredibly <laughs> engaging researchers who then do write wonderful pop science books and who end up doing the Christmas lectures and who end up on TV doing all kinds of things. And I think the fact that you guys have always valued that is a really good thing. I think a lot of other institutions are slowly catching up, but again, it comes down to this research culture and how we probably don't value it enough to ever mm -hmm. have that as part of somebody's workload. And if you don't have it as someone's workload, you're then expecting them to do it in their spare time but you're reaping the rewards of it and you want the, the rewards of it. But if you value it, you need to value them and their time as well. Doing good engagement takes time. It's not something that you can just, you know, quickly go and engage a bunch of kids in a school. You need to really think about it and how you're doing it. Popping onto TV to talk about, you know, a, a small expert bit on, I don't know, Sunday brunch or news night or whatever. <laughs> You can't just rock up and do that if you want to do it well. You need to really consider what you want to say. If that's valued, there will be training given, there'll be advice given, there'll be mentoring given, and there'll be time given. And you know what? I'm not saying that every researcher has to do it in such a public way or needs to do it in such a public way because not everybody is a natural communicator and not everybody can true. learn to be a communicator, Very but they true. can still input their thoughts into a wider communication and engagement strategy so that those that can do it can do it well and can do their work justice. So forcing everyone to do public engagement, you know, on TV or on a stage, that's not what I'm saying you should do, but everyone should understand the value of it and contribute in a way that works for them and be rewarded and acknowledged for doing it in a way that is appropriate. I get really ranty, sorry. <laughs> Not at all. No, that was that really made sense. <laughs> I think it's really important. That's why you're speaking about it passionately. Don't I, worry about it. I think if if that's really ranty, then I think every single podcast we've recorded yeah, has been, been a series really of ranty. rants. Good, good. I, I'd Don't much worry. rather that than monosyllabic answers. Like, you know. Honestly. How, how do you find working for digital day. science? It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> 
instead of like effusive, lovely, passionate answers, you're absolutely fine. No, actually, that's that's inspired me to to wonder. Actually, like, what, can you think of a time that you did a public engagement sort of activity of some sort, whether that was like speaking on I think you speak on Discovery Channel sometimes mm, and you yeah. write for Forbes were there any kind of moments that you can really remember that stood out to you or that maybe went a bit unexpectedly or something like that could you describe one for a um a master student level <laughs> science communicator Gosh, much I'm lower down to now so it's funny um <laughs> Yes, there are some amazing and wonderful things that I've had the opportunity of doing. So as you mentioned, I have this kind of, it sounds awful, it sounds really cringe saying it, but yeah, there's this whole science presenting TV career part of my science communication as well, um, which I still find kind of baffling. Um, And I'm sure my teachers would probably be thinking, is that the same Suze that we were teaching? What's she doing on TV? That's kind of weird. Um, So I suppose there are a couple that do stand out, yes. But maybe for different reasons. So one of my favourite engagement activities that I've ever done hasn't been on TV and hasn't been on the radio. It's a wonderful online engagement activity called I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. And I did it back in, oh gosh, I think it was June 2011. I can't believe it's going to be 10 years now since I've done that. And you end up in a zone with four other scientists and the zones are often themed. So ours was around energy because my research is around energy and clean energy production. And I think I was the only woman in my science cohort and the other four were men. And you get grouped with a range of schools across the country during their science lessons. And they get to ask you anything in their science lesson. And the reason I loved it was not just because I won the zone and I beat all the boys, though they were very (laughs) lovely and beating them was an incredible privilege and honour because I honestly thought they were all great. The thing I really loved about it was the fact that because these kids have created their little avatar, their little nickname, and they're all on a computer in their, you know, computer lab or school science lab or whatever, each kid gets to ask anything and they all have a voice. So even the quietest kid that may not want to put their hand up to ask anything, they -hmm. get to submit a question and we get to answer it. And there was no question that was off limits. They had moderators, of course, because, you know, (laughs) kids be kids, right? (laughs) But anything was, was possible. And I remember one question was about science and religion. And they were asking about whether you can believe in science or religion. And the five of us had to kind of step away just for a moment and go, how do we tackle this? I don't think any of us were particularly religious, but we know scientists that are. And it's how they balance that and how you can actually be both religious and a scientist, you know, these don't have to be conflicting things. They can be very different parts of your life. They can they can fulfill different aspects of you and your personality in your life and support mm. you in very different ways. And I remember that got picked up by the Guardian newspaper. Um, oh, so wow. that actually, because it was just such an interesting question that kids dare it to is. ask, it was great. And we tried to answer it as best we could. <laughs> um, So there was that, and I do love that. I think in terms of other things that I've done, um, one of my 
So I'm, I'm a big fan of the Royal Institution uh, over in Mayfair. I consider it the sort of home of science communication, a kind of cathedral to SciComm. And I'm a big Michael Faraday fan. One of my cats is called oh, Faraday. Who isn't? Oh, um, amazing. Okay, and, that's yes, more <laughs> Yes. The other one's called Bellatrix, but she's named after the star, not the witch. Anyway. And so I'm so <laughs> obsessed with this place that I remember the first time I got to speak there and I had my parents along and stuff. And I think it was the first oh. time my parents had seen me deliver like a one hour unscripted, you know, science lecture. And in a place like that, which is pretty incredible. Um, So there was that. I'm now actually, so I got engaged in Michael Faraday's lab. I'm that much of a nerd about the the RI. And I'm a trustee there now as well. Um, Kind of bucking the trend, I think, of what trustees are supposed to look like or usually look like, I should say, maybe not supposed (laughs) to. Maybe they are supposed to look more diverse. Um, My absolute probably favourite thing that I've managed to do within my slightly broad science communication career happened about a year ago. And it was giving a lecture to, I think it was maybe a couple of thousand school kids a couple of times, two or three times in a day on, I do a lot of uh, stealth science, material science lectures. So my favorite one is about superheroes and it's the science of superheroes. Um, And I got to do this at Disneyland Paris, which as a massive Disney fan and, you know, (laughs) home of Marvel was just, oh my God epic goals for me and I did it in my mini mouse ears and I had no regrets at all it was just brilliant so yeah Psycom who knew that could happen <laughs> I, I have so seen unexpected <laughs> I have fun. seen a picture online of Sue's in her mini mouse ears and I don't think I've ever seen anybody look happier <laughs> than you do in that picture so Oh my god. What Disney is my happy place. I, I mean, the year before that, I do a kind of annual, almost pilgrimage to the mothership um, in one of the Disney parks. So obviously, March 2020 was the last time we managed it. And then Paris basically closed up around us um, as we all went into lockdown. It was quite strange. Dramatic. Um, yeah. But the year before that, I managed to get um, to Disney World in Orlando because the American Chemical Society brilliantly have their springtime and their fall conferences um, on either coast of the USA usually. And the few times I've been, once was in Anaheim, which happened to be around Disneyland. And then the last time I went in 2019, just happened to be in next to Disney World in Orlando, Florida. So, oh my God, I love this. Had it to pop like by. You've built what a career the around, around being able to go to different Disneyland resorts. It's I great. Love that. It's just cool. You could do that with that science. Yeah, love it. <laughs> good job there was one thing you mentioned there which from a purely selfish point of view I really want to pick your brains now Um, because obviously with the pandemic Mm -hmm. a lot of university recruitment things have moved online Mm -hmm. Um, so one of my roles has been over the last year handling the virtual open days Mm. and you know you're you're having a QA and a and you've got online 30 odd 16 or 17 year olds and funnily enough asking them do you have any questions isn't usually enough to get them typing questions out yeah so it sounds to me like you have a good 10 years of experience of of kind of dragging questions out of people online <laughs> is there any advice you could give me for helping to to get teens to kind of open up with their questions more in this course? yeah i guess so it's sort of there's lots of ways that you can try and engage people I think um, 
So I did a, a teaching qualification alongside a, a postdoc back in 2013, 2014, I think it was. And I remember the notorious year nines because that's the year they change and oh, they just become so cool. Like I always feel, I feel uncool at the best of so times. So intimidating. But my goodness me, just trying to get them to, even if they are engaged, they feel they can't show it and it's devastating. Mm. Um, so finding kind of common ground with them is always mm. good trying to use that initial icebreaker time to maybe get them to understand that this is a space that they can be themselves that they can have a bit of a laugh that's fine another way that you can do it is to I, I like to use little polling tools and, and free answer tools things like Mentimeter I find Mentimeter mm -hmm. great because it's all anonymous and so you can, you can get kids to kind of ask their questions through that. They can also add comments. But one thing I really like to do as well, just to see as it, it's very kind of low level engagement impact, but you can do a kind of vote on something before you kick off, before you have even introduced yourselves on something like Mentimeter. And you get to then redo the vote again at the end. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see whether perceptions of, of certain aspects of change or whether you have managed to answer any questions that they may have had at the beginning. You know, do you know much about this? What's your confidence level in this? Um, nice. And see how it changes then towards the end of the lecture. But I think it's great. It does, um, <laughs> I used to use this in my lectures. And, you know, Kids, I don't know why we expect kids between upper sixth or, you know, year 13 and starting university in these magical six weeks to suddenly blossom into adult grown-ups that are highly mature and everything. So when I was teaching my first year undergrads, you kind of have to bear this in mind, in particular with the first year undergrads, that they are still basically kids. This is what you need to bear in mind, that things like Mentimeter have these amazing filters that you can put in, but you need to be on your memes, like you really need to be on your social media meme game. Because things like, I can't believe this is still even a thing, but kids for some reason will just write the word Harambe and crack up when it pops up on the screen or something. And you're just like, it's not even funny. What is wrong with you people? So of course, you know, this month's thing is gonna be Jackie Weaver probably, you know. You have no authority, Jackie Weaver. That'll be appearing on your Mentimeter, I'm sure. Is, is it just because be I that. assume that the step of, you know, watching a video of a parish council meeting <laughs> is just that little bit too dull for a teenager? I haven't seen it cropping up on Reddit yet, so that, oh, if it's yeah, there, well, then we'll know. Yeah, that will tell, yeah. So basically the main advice is to stay really well abreast of meme culture. <laughs> to yes, engage. and put yeah. them in your filters. <laughs> yes. It's very solid advice, to be honest. <laughs> the thing is, though, by using stuff like that, and, you know, we're kind of having a bit of a giggle, but you do need to be mindful, again, of codes of conduct. You need to be mindful mm. of being inclusive to all. So if somebody does want to ask a difficult question, you have to then decide whether it's a forum where you kind of want that to show up on the screen that you're sharing or whether you want to keep that to yourself and almost kind of self-monitor that and, and moderate what you're going to be sharing and stuff. Because we do need to be mindful mm -hmm. that you want all of these online spaces to be as safe as you would expect uh, an in-person space to be. And that some things, just because we're behind a screen, are not okay still. Yeah, so absolutely. that can be hard. But codes of conduct, I think, as well are pretty good. Just a really brief, you know, treat others as you expect to be treated is 
is the way forward on those for sure. I was going to tie back to something that you'd um, you'd mentioned earlier when we were talking about um, your your academic career, and you pointed out that it was only when you got into research that you felt that your your gender was kind of brought up as an issue at mm-hmm. that conference. Now, as I say, as as someone approaching forty, <laughs> I can remember back to my school years and remember that it was very much the attitude amongst the the teachers but also amongst the students that you know science wasn't for girls mm-hmm. there was a very big drop off uh in terms of the gender balance between GCSE and A level between mm-hmm. different subjects it seems to me now when i look at the younger generations when i look at people who are coming into university that that's no longer the case at, mm. at that kind of undergraduate level it's much more accepted that Mm -hmm. Your gender doesn't mean that you can or cannot do certain subjects. Mm -hmm. But from what you're saying, it's still very much there at a research level. Do you think that's something which is just going to change over time as generations age? Or do you think it's something where actual steps need to be taken to try and get over this kind of Mm -hmm. gender uh, balance at the research level? It's an interesting level. I mean, if we look at gender as as one of one of these parameters of inclusion and, and representation i i think so the last time kids took a levels was 2019 and there were more girls doing science a levels than there were boys which is great oh, wow. and we're taking you know biology chemistry physics and maths here as 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 the science um, a levels girls also outperform boys at a level and so some of this is translating to a slightly better representation of women than before at undergraduate level but there are a couple of things that we do need to think about that that may look like a a positive statistic but are the majority of these girls coming from more privileged backgrounds generally and are we then still underserving in terms of outreach and everything? Kids from, from non-traditional STEM backgrounds, because again, a lot of this can tie into culture and things as well. So we really need to kind of look at how these numbers are sort of made up in terms of other characteristics as well. I think socioeconomic background is a big thing. I mean, research still feels awfully privileged and rather elite and if you can afford to go to university you can go to university this is even more prevalent I think at postgraduate level I mean certainly for my PhD the majority of people that I did my PhD with they didn't have the scope to have any kind of part-time job to support them because there's just no time but they were Mm -hmm. all reasonably well cushioned and supported by parents that could could be that backup should they require their support that's not always going to be the case for people. So I think we still need to address that. We also need to address the fact that we may have a lot of good balance in terms of gender. Um, We're we're speaking in a very binary way here, but we Mm. do have a lot more um, gender balance at undergraduate level, but is this retained as you progress through research or is there a drop-off? I mean, we, we talk about the leaky pipeline analogy where a lot of women do end up dropping out of research. Is that a bad thing though? Are we saying that people should only do a PhD if they want to be a researcher? Because I mean, the topic of today's chat and you know, alternative yeah. academic careers is that you can actually do an awful lot within research without actually, you know, working within academia formally. So there's mm-hmm. lots of places and we shouldn't maybe just value getting to professor level as being success within research. There's lots of other ways that people can work in industry, in, in other labs, in tech, and really make a positive difference and a positive use of their skills. 
Um, so true. So I think there's there's lots of different ways that you can kind of look at this, I suppose. Um, I don't know if that really answered your question. I think it just threw lots of does. questions back at you. <laughs> it's probably because it's a complex <laughs> situation. It really it? is, though. And it's, and this is why, yeah. you know, we're not experts in this. Social scientists are. And that's why we need to work more closely with them to better understand what we're trying to do, the kind of data that we can gather and the way that we evaluate that data. And whether that's qualitative or quantitative as well, because researchers that work within science are generally terrible at being good at wrangling qualitative data, but it's so valuable because that's where you get all the nuance and that's where you can learn an awful lot. No, absolutely. I think it's really important that what digital science is doing for for just having that data though, right? Mm. Because I think in the past there were just these big massive gaps where you could kind of say as as another woman of colour, I would mm-hmm. kind of be able to feel that there's a difference oh, yeah. in research, but it's so important to also have data now that you can kind of look at and be like well there, there very clearly is something wrong here and how absolutely do we, and what i would say is i mean digital science actually don't have that data all we're doing is looking mm-hmm. at the data that's out there um, oh, exactly. and yeah. and that's what's important that this is open for everyone to to jump yeah. into to analyze to have a look at what we need to make sure we're doing is encouraging people to to create useful data to fill these gaps and so you know we need the likes of UKRI and higher education sort of authorities to to really be trying to capture better data so that we can make sense of all of this in a meaningful way. I can specifically remember women working in physics talking about these campaigns to get more women into STEM Mm -hmm. fields and responding and saying the problem is not getting women into (laughs) STEM fields. Women do very, very well. You know, Mm -hmm. more women are doing A-levels than men in science areas, more women achieving well. It's keeping them in the STEM fields once they're there. And I was reminded of the... um, the campaign what was the name i think it was uh science it's, it's a girl, a girl thing, thing. Oh. Oh, campaign, yeah. which was about oh, 10 geez. years ago which was which seemed to be a perfect summation of all of the things that you shouldn't be doing yes absolutely yeah oh my gosh and it was commissioned i think by the european council and it was everything you'd expect it was lab coats and glasses it was making lipstick oh it was <laughs> All of those things. Actually, we we a few of us were so offended by that that some very clever people wrangled a bunch of scientists together and we created a well, this is this was the, the roots of the organization called Science Girl. Um and they uh, initially started by creating a calendar that showcased actual women in science doing all of the things that they do and and I remember I was Miss June in that and I was thinking I've never been a calendar girl have I you kind of expect it to be sort of conical flasks and strategic places it wasn't like that at all (laughs) it was just everyone doing their thing basically um but that was all to kind of raise money for more kind of getting girls into STEM type initiatives as well but you're absolutely yeah, right. Retention's a, a big, big problem. And then, I oh, see she's ranting again. You then kind of think, is it a responsible or an irresponsible thing to encourage women to get into science? Because you then get them into True. this culture, which is trying. It is trying to be better. It's trying to be more inclusive. But is it a responsible thing to then kind of try and recruit women into this profession, knowing that it still has that many challenges? I would probably say yes, but you need to make sure that they're aware of it, that they're well supported in it, and that things yep. are changing. They have changed a lot, and they will continue to change. 
Um, but it takes time. It takes time. And they can really play an active part in that. But we shouldn't just leave it to women and underrepresented groups to have to represent themselves. Everybody yeah. should get involved in this because it benefits everyone. And we need to really make that point quite clear, I think. Yeah. No, thank you for saying that. I think especially for this episode, it's so important to mm-hmm. remember that just because we're <laughs> women speaking about this, yeah. it obviously should involve everyone in the effort. And yeah, I just wanted to pick up on the fact as well that you, you mentioned we are speaking about gender in a really binary way. And I guess it's important to just remember that the field we're talking about is very male dominated, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean it. I think it's the retention of of anyone who is not male that is yeah. important that we're looking at here. Absolutely. I think the reason I wanted to state UCL for for all the other stuff as well as just the undergrad was that I love London. I love that UCL is, I think, a truly global... Oh, I've just used your tagline. <laughs> truly, it's a global university. Hashtag on brand. But yeah, so that, that was kind of the big thing for me that UCL had actual yeah. people from actual places that had interesting stories to tell and had different lived experiences to mine because that's what university's for it's for learning about all of that and finding friends that live in far-flung places so that you can go and see them over the summer um you know it's great and I think you know I love the course I love the fact that it had elements that you could choose. So you weren't just stuck doing chemistry. I did history and philosophy of science. I did languages. I loved all of this stuff. (laughs) And it just just made me happy that they valued a slightly broader way of learning because these things are still complementary to the main subject that you're you're doing. And I just, I love the opportunity there. I love Bloomsbury. I just, everything's good about UCL. Oh. That's that's interesting to me though. Can I break uh, back in? Do you think <laughs> we've we've interviewed a couple of people who, when we took a look at their academic career, uh, we interviewed Christina Pargel last oh, year, yeah. oh, and yeah. she like did a degree in maths, <laughs> and then something in medieval history, and then something in chemistry. You know, like she yeah. jumped around all Very over the place. Cool. Yeah. So so on paper. Your academic career looks a lot more, at least the UCL part, to be like, you know, yeah. chemistry, chemistry, yeah. chemistry. Some continuity, yeah. And yet you still think of it as as a time where you were able to learn all these things from the different subjects. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if you guys still do it, but we had the Roberts Point system as a postgrad, which meant that we had to, um, it was basically to to make sure that people, whether they were doing STEM or whether they were doing arts and humanities, had a slightly more rounded postgraduate education. So you had all the additional courses that you could do in terms of leadership and building resilience and all of these other things that you could do. You could do educational courses and things. And I, I just, I really liked that as well. Yeah. That sounds actually really, really interdisciplinary mm. for not using that word too much as a buzzword, but genuinely <laughs> sounds like it. So, no, yeah. fair play. <laughs> but as we come to an end there, I, I think that's been absolutely wonderful. Um, so thank you very, very much to Dr. Suze Kundu for her time. And we'll join you all next month for another episode of Hypotenuse. Thanks again. Thanks again.